I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to a podcast tentatively titled All Stats Aren't We, where two Leeds fans look back over the last season to try and analyse it using the underlying statistics. I'm John McKenzie, freelance writer and author, and I'm joined by Jamie Kemp, football editor at Opta Sports. Jamie, how's it going? All good, John. Thanks for the invite. How are you feeling? How's the last few weeks been? I guess we've we've given ourselves a little bit of distance from the uh, for the Derby home game uh, in order to gather our thoughts. But how how are you feeling now that the dust has settled? Yeah, not too bad. When I knew I was going to be coming on this podcast, that sort of forced me to watch the game back because I'm not sure I would have done it otherwise. <laughs> I watched it back yesterday. <laughs> I still haven't watched it. In a way, it's actually made me feel worse because we played better than I remember. Yeah, I think we were pretty solid for the first half. And then as soon as that goal went in, I just thought, you know, the nature of that goal, it was the worst kind of goal I think we could possibly have conceded. Um, and I think from that point onwards, I was like, here we go. This is definitely happening now. Um, but yeah, to explain what we're going to do in this podcast, we've divided it up into a number of different areas. So we're going to look at the season in general. We're going to look at the, the team. So um, specify different areas of the team to, to go through. Uh, we're going to look at Bielsa himself, explore a little bit of the ideas behind him. And then we're going to look at what is going to be needed to be done over the summer. But before we jump into all that, I just wanted to ask you a question about this, just the season in general um, from a statistical or tactical point of view. And I guess my question would be, have you found this season more enjoyable than than the, than the last ones in, in, from the point of view of stats and tactics yeah definitely even though it ended in a terrible way I have enjoyed this season probably the most out of any since I've been a fan of Leeds or that I can remember yeah I've I've enjoyed watching the games back to see things that I didn't notice at the time I think that's been one thing that's really stood out this season compared to previous ones Obviously, when you've watched a Neil Warnock team, there's not much motivation to go back and watch that again. <laughs> but with Bielsa, it was just complete end of the spectrum. I, I loved following this season throughout. Yeah. And you've spent some of the time writing a blog about Leeds from a, from the stats tactics point of view. Was that decision prompted by the fact that Bielsa was managing Leeds? And to what extent do you feel as though you're, you're filling a, a niche that hadn't really been filled before in, in terms of Leeds United? Yeah, sure. I remember thinking when I, when I first started up that there's no way I would have made this for any other manager, really. 
when Bielsa came in, I, I felt sort of compelled to do it just because of, of how interesting the setup and the style of play was. And I, I think a lot of fans, although everybody sort of appreciates what Bielsa has done, I still think a lot don't really get sort of the ins and outs of how we go about things. Like, for example, at games, I still hear a lot of moaning about playing out from the back and little things that comprise what Bielsa is all about. Obviously, everybody likes the results and the team goals when they go in, but I still think the mentality didn't quite change among among the fans. Yeah, that's interesting. I remember sitting in the in the stands at the last Palmas game, the 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 last pre-season friendly before the season started, and it was really the first taster that we'd had of what Bielsa Leeds United was going to look like, because before that we did it had just been. Uh, very experimental teams, a lot of youth pe- players being brought in. And I remember sitting there and thinking, you know, this is the first time I've really watched a Leeds United team. And I've, and there's a, just a really, one, there's a really palpable level of, of tactical, um, nous on, on, on show that you can tell that the, there's a, there's a very definite, um, idea of how football should be played and, and what the team were trying to do. Uh, but again, there was that aspect as well that you're talking about there where, where there was, you, you could, you could audibly hear people in the stands saying, Oh, I don't like this passing out from the back. We just need to hoof it long. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been interesting this season. I think just to see how Leeds, one on the one, on the one hand, how Leeds fans have really got on board with what it is that Bielsa does. Uh, but at the same time, the fact that, that it does seem as though there are certain ideas about the way that, that Leeds set up that, that the, that the fans are a little bit more, um, nervous about. But let's jump in then to the, to the season. Cause obviously around the, the midway point of the season over Christmas, Leeds are looking great they're top of the table they've had a brilliant first half of the season and then as we know the second half was uh, something uh, of, of, a, of a disaster in many respects question from at td woodhead on twitter was there an appreciable difference in the way our opponents played i.e sitting deeper as the season went on so th- th- i guess this is the question about what what is it that changed that mid midway through the season how would you start going about answering that kind of question in regards to teams changing the way they play, I, I think over the course of the season, it was it was pretty much the same. It was just the fact that towards the end of the season, we we struggled to break teams down a lot more often, which be, which made it seem more drastic than it was. There was only one game this season where the opposition had more possession than us. That was Sheffield United away. So it has been a theme all season that we've dominated the ball, whether that was the team letting us have possession or whether we forced the issue. But um, if you wanted to break the season up into the point where things were going great and when they start to go badly, I think the first game of that would be West Brom away in November, which it was a drastic scoreline. Not quite as bad as the underlying statistics would say. If you look at the XG scores, we were 0.82 and West Brom 1.42. So they've ended up scoring four goals in that game, which makes it sound worse than it was. But it was a, a noticeable dip in performance from the opening few months of the season. From that point up until around QPR away, which was in February, it wasn't all bad performances in this period, of course, but um, the off days were definitely more apparent in this period. We had a strange run, really. Between Hull and Stoke, between December and January, we played four games, lost three of them. The underlying stats would say we deserved to lose those games, probably. But in between that, we had Derby at home, which we won 2-0, which was one of our best performances of the season. So in between these these low points, we also had some really excellent performances. 
which was a bit strange and sort of symptomatic of what we were in the end. We were all or nothing. Yeah, I, I put that down on the running order, actually. It does feel as though when we were good, we were very, very good. And when we were bad, we were very, very bad. Yeah. It didn't really feel as though there was anything in between those two um, positions. But uh, I wondered if, if you would have any thoughts on whether or not teams started playing differently against us in the second half then to, to answer that question I mean I, I wrote a piece for Football Whispers and I looked at the obviously looked at the underlying stats and, and obviously all the way through the season Leeds were creating enough quality chances to on balance of play win games in, in almost every um, situation but it was very appreciable, I think, when I looked at the, the stats for that piece for Football Whispers, that what was happening is that these chances were being created in, in slightly different ways. I think when we, when we talk about Bielsa teams, if you look at, the, say, the first 10 games of the season, free-flowing football, creating um, and manipulating space, um, getting Kimar Roof in particular in, in behind uh, and utilising that space really well, that, that, those were the periods when Leeds were doing the best. And then in the second half of the season with teams realising that actually you could uh, sit a little bit deeper, you could remove any spaces that Leeds could exploit and then hit them on the counter-attack and target in particular perhaps Liam Cooper or, or even the fullback on the left-hand side uh, on the counter-attack and you could you could really make a, a big dint into into Leeds United despite the fact that they were still dominating possession they were still dominating chances created so th- for me that was the that was the the takeaway from the second half of the season T- teams became a little bit more savvy about the ways to beat Leeds they became a little bit more savvy about the way that Leeds were going to cause them problems and, and they became a little bit more savvy about the way they could cause Leeds problems. Does that sound about right to you? Yeah, I'd agree with that stylistically. I think as we got deeper into the season, obviously everybody knows about the injury situation. There's just there's just no way you can keep sustaining performances when we kept losing players in key positions and having to sort of adapt on the fly. So when with the combination of teams sort of figuring out ways to, you know, to, to hurt us, um, if then you can't respond at the other end with your best sort of attacking football, it's not a good recipe. Do you think then there was a, there was issues with the squad? Was the squad too small? Was the squad not good enough? I think the squad was good enough. For example, I look back to the, the opening day against Stoke. If you look at the squad on that day, as it stood, it looked like a very decent championship side. And then you compare it to sort of around January, February time, it's just completely different. Just bench full of under 23 players and players that although it was nice that you know we had all these youngsters and Bielsa was willing to give them a chance it's not entirely practical to have to be managing things like that within a promotion push like we saw Shackleton had to start the second leg and although he actually played very well the fact you have a 19 year old starting a game like that leads his biggest in decade or whatever shows that something probably went wrong along the way well, I totally agree with that I remember looking at the bench for the Derby game at home and I think six out of the seven subs were were under 23s players effectively so that's not a, a scenario that any any manager would want to be in and and as you say I think you know I think at Leeds Leeds fans have a have a tradition of being very keen on on youth players we've got some really good youth players coming through the under 23s have had a great season and some of the other youth sides have had great seasons as well but there's not a scenario where you want to be bringing in someone like Shackleton, as you say, in into a big game like that for uh, for one of his sit. Well, I guess he had single figure league starts in 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 the championship. So again, that's not really that ideal. 
the question I guess we need to ask is about whether or not it's fair to say that Bielsa has no plan B. How would you go about answering that? I think the, the quotes that come out here, there and everywhere of the Bielsa will say, you know, why would you have a plan B? That just means that you don't trust your plan A. But obviously the story of this season has been actually maybe a plan B could have been more helpful. So how how would you go about answering that? When people mention the term Plan B, everybody just thinks, all right, now we we put two strikes on whatever and get the ball into the box and hopefully something comes off. But I think for us, Plan B next season needs to be assistance from the bench. Players who can come on and actually affect what's going on because we've, we've really not had that apart from Clark for a few months. I think Bielsa, he rarely went away from sort of the formation that we played and the, the system that we played. It was always just moving different players into different roles, trying to unlock doors where we could. But I just think the the quality that we could supplement the starters with was was never high enough. Maybe to make a brief comment on this, we did have a question about comparison of performances in a four one four one versus a three three one three formation, and I would just say. It's very easy to, to, to think about what's happening tactically in terms of formations, but in many respects, the four one four one is just the way that Leeds defend. And then when they're attacking, they, they move into a situational three, three, one, three anyway. Um, so it's very, it's very tempting to say, to talk about tactics in terms of formations. But I think from, from what I've seen from Bielsa at Leeds anyway, formation is simply what you put on the starting sheet and it will very quickly morph into something else. So when you play a four, one, four, one, so you've got your back four and then Calvin Phillips in front of them, and then two central midfielders with two wide players and then a, and then a lone striker. Um, Phillips will drop usually in between the two centre-backs, the two full-backs will push up and that'll make the 3-3. And then one of your midfielders will be um, will be pushing forward into the 10 position and then you've got your striker in the two wide players. So it's very it's very hard to actually talk about, I think, Leeds' tactics in, in terms of plan A versus plan B, precisely because it's not so much that there are different plans, it's there is a system and, those, and that system is tweaked in order to get the best out of it against the teams that, that they're playing against. So that's just by way of a caveat, I think, um, in terms of the plan, for me, the plan A, plan B question, because, you know, there's certain situations where you'll see, for example, Calvin Phillips will drop right back in between the two centre-backs and, and effectively play as a, as a centre-back in a back three. We saw that a, a lot more at the beginning of the season. We see that against um, teams with two strikers up front. But other times as well, you'll see him dropping in deep situationally in possession other times you won't see him dropping anywhere near as deep and he'll he'll sit a lot further forward of the centre backs as well so that's just another thing to keep in mind I think next season um, see how how that develops one more question before we get into the the team is a question from Stephen Orm at Stephen Orm 9 he says he would love detailed analysis of the whole XG actual goals disparity how much of an outlier we were likelihood of happening again and strategies to avoid etc I think this is particularly at the end of the season Bielsa obviously came out and said that, that Leeds were creating chances they just weren't converting them anywhere near the sort of rate that you might expect certainly if you compared them to Norwich and Sheffield United they were way way off the pace so Jamie what's your thoughts on the whole XG disparity yeah I've had a long look at this to try and get to the bottom of our finishing issues if you look XG wise over the course of the season the table was sort of clearly defined as three really good teams so Leeds Sheffield United Norwich and then it was sort of a case of the rest so yeah if, if you if we go on XG per game values 
Leeds did create the best chances over the course of the season and they also had the best best defence in terms of XG conceded. So we had the framework for how a team would get promoted out of this league in terms of style of play, creating chances and limiting conceding them. But if you look at the XG value per shot, we ranked 16th out of the 24 teams and that's below Tony Pulis's Middlesbrough. <laughs> that would suggest that although we did create a lot of chances, there's a, there's a big difference between real quality chances and just adding to the frequency of chances. So if we look at in terms of how teams performed unexpected goals versus their actual goals, again, we finished very low down in terms of underperformance. For example, Norwich were top. They outperformed their expected goals by 18, which is absurd. And we were minus 4.79, which tells you a lot about the clinical fashion of teams at the top. We just didn't have it for whatever reason, and the other teams did. Another thing to mention, at Opta we have a metric called Big Chance Total, which would be defined as a situation where a player should reasonably be expected to score, usually in a one-on-one scenario or from very close range. So I looked up the rankings for this player-wise, and for players who had a minimum of 15 big chances this season, Bamford ranked dead last with a conversion rate of 21%. If you compare that with Roof, he had 28 big chances and converted 43% of them. So that's twice as many as Bamford on a higher volume, which could lead you to suggest that if Roof had not been injured for significant stretches of this season, especially down the stretch, things could have been quite a lot different in that sense. Yeah. There's a lot of questions people have about XG and there's a lot of, I think, urban myths about them. So the, there seems to be this this sort of narrative going around a lot of Leeds fans, which was, well, if we have a better striker next season, then all of our problems will be sorted out. Um, so I just wanted to point people in the direction of, of a, an article in The Ringer uh, by Bobby Gardner called uh, Raheem Sterling proves that everything you know about goal scoring is wrong. What Bobby does in this pieces that he, he he looks at the what the, the underlying variables that that can affect how you perform against xg and his conclusion is that actually whether or not you're a good finisher actually is pretty far down the list so there's a sense in which i think what we need to take away from this is what you said about actually if you look at the the average xg figures for for each shot and, and the fact that leads are 16th in that in that metric shows that actually leads yes they're creating a lot of chances but those chances aren't quite as good as they, that was uh, again another piece that i wrote for football whispers this time round was that actually as the season went on Leeds were struggling to break down defences they were taking more shots from distance and they were also actually unable to take as many shots from for example headers as they might have wanted to given that they were crossing the ball in quite a lot strategies to avoid it and likelihood of it happening again I'd say yes Leeds were unlucky it's unlikely that it would happen again next season but there's there's definitely uh, tactical tweaks that can be made in order to to avoid um, that sort of thing happening again next season which I think would be developing systems of play which are a little bit more creative that allow Leeds to have better chances particularly in in the six yard box so I don't know whether or not you would agree with that yeah definitely I think another thing that we need to improve on next season is just getting a greater share of sort of goals from around the team because a lot of a lot of our chances were funneled through whoever was playing as a number nine if you look at the xg per 90 figures from open play for leads Bamford and Roof were top Bamford 0.61 Roof 0.54 and then the third player on the list is Hernandez with 0.19 which is 
shows sort of the dependency that we had on our number nine to get and finish those chances. Yeah, I think that's that's a good point as well. Right, let's move on to look at the team then. What we'll do is we'll break this down into the goalkeeper, defence, midfield and, and attack. And we'll we'll give a sort of rough, I guess, mark out of 10 for it, for each area as we go along. So we'll start with the goalkeeper. Obviously, there was a lot of questions about goalkeepers at Big Jimmy underscore V asks, I guess, an obvious one situation when he replaced Bailey Peacock Farrell at Jack Doherty asks, not sure if this is even possible to work out, but who is the most effective goalkeeper this season in terms of both stopping and starting attacks? Now, I did a, just a quick search of some of the the underlying stats comparing Kassia and and Bailey Peacock Farrell and surprisingly enough in general Bailey Peacock Farrell did have the better stats now I would caveat that with a number of things one is that Kika Kassia despite the fact he didn't attempt as many passes as Bailey Peacock Farrell he did have a better passing percentage completion rate so he's a he is the better passer which is why he was brought into the into the team the other stat where he was better than Bailey Peacock Farrell was standing saves in in every other area Bailey Bailey Peacock Farrell was more productive in terms of per 90 metrics. I would also say, you know, obviously Kiko Casilla came in in the second half of the season. And as we've been saying all the way through um, so far, there's a big change between the first half of the season and the second half of the season. So those things do need to be taken into account. But it does look as though actually the the um, arrival of Kiko Casilla in the lead squad actually didn't have quite so much of a of an impact as, as maybe we thought he might have done. What thoughts have you got on Kiko Kassir and his uh, effectiveness? Like you said, if you look at them statistically, it was very, very similar across the board, really. Distribution and just general goalkeeping. One one metric to add would be um, expected goals on target prevented, which basically takes the value values of shots that they've faced on target versus the number of goals they've conceded. And with, with that, they were almost identical, really. I think it was around four goals that they would have been expected to save more than they did so yeah considering that he came from Real Madrid and it was a real eye-opening signing he definitely didn't have the impact that you would have expected from a keeper of his experience and quality from what he'd shown in Spain I used to watch a lot of Spanish football just from previous jobs and he, he really was considered sort of one of the top five Spanish keepers leading up to his move to Madrid but in hindsight I think Although he came from Madrid with such sort of prestige and experience behind him, I, th- I think we probably underestimated how difficult it is to go from not playing and then straight into a, a different kind of football, straight into a promotion push without that sort of rhythm behind him. And he sort of had to learn on the fly. And I think you saw that in s- so many rash decisions towards the end of the season. From watching him in Spain, I just, I've never seen him flying off his line like that so frequently and making such poor decisions. I don't know why it just sort of started to happen towards the end of the season because the first few months, although he didn't, he didn't really stand out and he wasn't sort of keeping us in games or anything, he never looked at him as like, this guy's really going to cost us at some point with one of these decisions. But from sort of Ipswich onwards, it was, it was just sort of madness really at times. Yeah, it felt as though he felt the need to make up for the mistakes he'd made by doing increasingly gunko rushes out and attempts to sort of take the ball off the off the defender's feet and stuff like that. But in terms of going forward, so for me, I think the the the, the goalkeeper's probably sub substandard this season. It's certainly not higher than five out of ten. I would give them. In terms of next season, what do you think the approach should be? Should be stick with both Casilla and Peacock Farrell and 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 hope that those those sorts of nervous moments iron themselves out. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see 
I think somebody on uh, Twitter was suggesting that Casilla might might be on his way for just just because of the fact that we've not been promoted and they signed, sort of assuming he would be a Premier League keeper next season. But if he does want to stay, I'd, I'd I would be happy for them to to go into next season. I don't, by the sounds of it, from what sort of Phil Hayes been saying this week about funds and potential signings, we're not going to have a great deal to spend. So I would rather see it spent on outfield players than the keeper at this point. I'd agree with that. Did you want to hazard a out of ten score for for the goalkeepers? Yeah, I'd, I'd struggle to go beyond five or six really as well for the first half of the season with Peacock Farrell. There was times where he'd go through games without having to do anything really and that sort of papered over the cracks. But once we started to get into a bit of adversity, there were games where poor shot stopping put us in bad situations. And uh, I did agree with bringing a keeper in, even though Casilla didn't quite work out as well as we hoped. Well, let's move on to defence. I think we'll split this into centre-backs and full-backs. In terms of centre-backs, we've had a real struggle this season, it feels. We've been playing Cooper and Pontus Janssen. Liam Cooper and Pontus Janssen's fine, but that is pretty much the extent to which we have sort of classical centre-backs playing in the squad this season. So we relied on Berardi being brought in. And obviously Berardi played okay, but um, we, we can talk about that. And then we had Apohalme coming in as well at times when there was injuries elsewhere. So what's your sort of th- thinking about the, the centre-back scenario? Would you Clearly, we need another centre-back. We need to have some kind of cover. But how would you say the season went centre-back-wise? Yeah, I thought, I thought Janssen and Cooper individually were were very good throughout. I don't think, although we we did have defensive frailties towards the end, I think over the course of the season in general, both were very good and you wouldn't look at those two individually as reasons why we didn't get over the line. But yeah, I do agree we need we need a, a stronger third option, somebody who is naturally a centre-back. I still don't think Berardi is, not just because of his height, but um, sort of in, in the playoffs, in the second leg especially. With the higher line that we play, we have to be able to recover. And I'm not sure Brady's quite the athlete that allows us to, to play that style as much as Cooper and Janssen. If you had to pick between Cooper and Janssen, which one would you, would you pick for our system? It's uh, a, a tough one. I, I think if you would say who had the better season overall playing in Bielsa's side, I think I'd give the edge to Cooper. I think he was, he was very good at s- stepping up getting close to strikers and winning his duels, which is something that came as part of Bielsa joining the club because we, ne- we never really saw that from him before. But I think Cooper adapted to Bielsa's play really well. And we, we heard Bielsa speaking about Janssen a few weeks ago in that press conference when he said he thought Janssen was our player of the season, which um, if, if Bielsa says that, then obviously he put a lot of stock into it. But yeah, th- those two I would not be worried about at all going into next season. Yeah, that's an unfair question to ask, isn't it? Because I think they actually complemented each other quite well. Cooper's obviously a bit more of a ball-playing centre-back. He he really benefited, I think, from uh, the fact Leeds were playing possession football. He's not going to be put into those scenarios where he's probably a little bit weaker, which is, I think, the ball being played over his head into space. Those are the scenarios where I worry about the way that Cooper performs. Janssen's the opposite, I think. Um, I'm, I'm, I really like the way that he sort of developed into an almost Chiellini type of defender who's expected to 
pick the ball up, drive in, into attacking scenarios, and, and to find space in that way rather than uh, than passing the ball. So I think I'm quite happy with the two of them as well. Obviously, Cooper I think got found out a little bit more towards the end of the season. I think uh, opposition started targeting him a little bit when they realised that you could sit deep and then uh, and then pump balls into the space behind him, and 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 um, that added to the fact that the goalkeeper was obviously adding um, a level of of uncertainty to the back line as well meant that the Leeds lost a lot of goals that way but I, I'm I, I think relatively speaking I think the centre-backs had a pretty good season um, and the only thing that we struggled with in, in that respect was the, the fact that we we didn't have we, we I don't know how many games we actually had Cooper and Janssen, Janssen together for but it was certainly uh, a lot of games where they where they weren't together and we were having to rely on one or, or other being injured so I would probably give them yeah I'd give I'd, I'd say they're probably a, one of the better parts of our team um, I'd be tempted to give maybe even an 8 eight out of 10 for, for the centre-backs with the proviso that we probably need another centre-back but we'll talk about about that in a minute how about yourself how would you how would you rank them 8 very fair to me as well yeah good and then on to the fullbacks. Let's talk a little bit about how they work in a, in a Bielsa system I've got another plug for an article Rams Srivanas and Matt Lawrence have produced a medium post where they profile championship fullbacks, uh, which I'll add into the, the show notes for this. Uh, but it was a brilliant piece. Um, it broke down their various fullbacks in the championship into stylistic divisions, and and I found that really interesting because they were they were saying like which sort of fullbacks work well in certain systems. So the system that they put the, the Leeds fullbacks in was build up oriented system. So they said what we like to term as build up oriented fullbacks are those who are likely to be involved in a move from start to finish, from deep in their own half to the opposition third usually with shorter range passes these fullbacks don't cross as much as others but are very dynamic with a high tendency to dribble past an opponent and even get involved in the opponent's penalty area so that sounds very familiar to, to Leeds fans and they highlighted Luke Ayling actually in this article as being a, a standout player who who actually shows up really well in the statistics and I think a lot of people would probably agree with that I think there was a little bit of a wobble after Ayling had been out for a while but he came back in and was and was really strong after that which I think is interesting because in previous seasons I've always been a little bit hesitant to uh, when it comes to Ayling because he didn't really fit within the systems but it does feel as though the Bielsa system works well so yeah w- what's your thoughts on, on the fullback system yeah I think early in the season when uh, we had Douglas and Ailing playing together I really thought that we had sort of something special in that area in terms of the context of the league although Douglas he was signed as sort of the assist machine from Wolves and it, that didn't really reflect in his early performances I did think he was very good in terms of using the ball and I, th- I thought with Douglas and Ailing playing high up allowing sort of the the midfielders to go central especially Nandez. I thought I thought we were very strong in that area, and then obviously as the season went on, we were just decimated. Not not so much on Ailing's side because he was he was available pretty much throughout, but especially on the left, we went we went through obviously Douglas and Alioski, and then we lost a winger who was playing at left back as our best option. So then you you really dig in deep to replicate that effect from fullback. Sort of when I think about Norwich and. How they changed their season. I think getting Lewis and Max Aaron's playing regularly was a big factor in sort of them becoming what, what. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. They were in the end. So how are you feeling about next season then? Is it just the hope that, that Douglas manages to get back to full fitness over the summer and and we keep we keep ailing? Because I mean, obviously we don't really have huge amounts of backup in, in either area. I mean, we, we had... Tom Pierce playing for a bit at left back. We had Stuart Dallas playing for a bit at left back. Um, and I guess but Dallas is quite a nice um, utility player to have there. But on the right-hand side, you're sort of looking at Berardi. And then, I mean, we played Shackleton at, at right back at times. I guess there's a few youngsters coming through as well. But would you would you think that we would need to have any sort of de- development in those areas? Yeah, I would like to see a full-back come in among the most sort of pressing players that we need to add to the squad. I just think they're so important to the way Bielsa wants to play now. And if, if we don't have sort of our premier first options available, then it's, it does peg us back a lot in the grand scheme, especially because of the fact we don't we don't really have direct wingers who when sort of when we isolate the play and we can switch it out to a winger, when they get 1v1, it, it's, it's very rare this season that you would sort of switch it out to Harrison and he'd be able to go on his own past the player and get a shot or a really good cross off. So I do think a lot of Bales' plays sort of rooted in being strong down the wings and having good fullbacks is really important for us. Yeah, so in terms of fullbacks, what sort of mark out of 10 would you give them? I think you'd have to s- sort of split it between Ailing and the, the left side because we just had so, so much disruption out there. Ailing, I'd give I'd give him a 7 out of 10 this season. And then on the left, I really liked Douglas early on. But after that, we always struggle to replicate that same level of quality. So I'd give probably 6. Okay. I'm fine with that. Sounds about right. Nothing to write home about, but often good enough uh, in the system. A question from at 99, Mike Shipley 99. He asks, against effective counter-attacking teams, it seems to me that the positionally advanced fullbacks often leave the centre-backs exposed. Do you agree? If so, would you alter the tactics or accept the risk? No, I'd, I'd definitely accept the risk. When Bielsa comes in, you know that we are going to take certain risks that will allow us to sort of get the full package of what Bielsa brings. Obviously, there are there are times where you get caught out and it, it, it does look bad, but I think the times when we do play high up and we're creating steady flow of chances that might not result in goals, but this they sort of get forgotten when you see sort of a bad error on the d- defensive end. So I don't think there were that many times throughout the season where it was a massive problem. Best example of it was probably Hull at home. Bowen and Grzycki did expose it badly that day. But with the way that we want to play, I think it's just a necessity. And we've we've got to accept the bad that comes with the good. 
Mm. I guess this brings us quite nicely onto midfield because I think part of the reason why Phillips has, has been so important to us this season is because he is often sitting in front of those two centre-backs or between those two centre-backs and, and offering that defensive cover. So let's go on to to talk about Calvin Phillips. Obviously, he's been a fan favourite this season um, and I've seen a lot of um, things about fans saying that we should build a team around Calvin Phillips. So I just wondered what you thought about, about that. And I know you wrote a piece for the LU UFC blog um, looking at Adam Forshaw in particular because Adam Forshaw was much maligned through the season um, so I wondered how you would you would talk about those two players who played a lot of the season in the in the number six position and and I guess I would ask the question is Calvin Phillips as good as the fans think <laughs> yeah for me Phillips is absolutely number one in that position for Leeds the sort of the the bad will towards Forshaw, if you could call it that, was I think the fans viewed it more as the guy who was getting in the way of Phillips rather than what Forshaw brings himself. But in that deep position, I don't think you can you can't argue against what Phillips did for us this season in terms of being a, a destructive player who controls those opposition counter attacks. He did a excellent job throughout the season I think if you're talking about building the team around him he would have to have more of an influence sort of in possession sort of building attacks carrying the ball out things like that I, I wouldn't I wouldn't call him a player who you build the team around but he is one of the first three names on the team sheet you'd say at this point yeah and I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that this is all about system right and in the system that is the player that we need we, you can't have a weak player in that number six position in the system that we play for precisely the reasons we've already talked about which is we expect the uh, fullbacks to get very advanced and we don't give a huge amount of cover to our to our centre backs so I think in that respect Calvin Phillips was yeah hugely important but I think it has to be said he's a very one dimensional player he does he does one thing very very well and that is the defensive side of the game that is breaking up counter-attacks that is offering that cover defensively if you actually compare Phillips and Forshaw in terms of their underlying numbers Forshaw is shows up all round good he's he's very good defensively he's also very very good in terms of ball possession as well and I have no doubt whatsoever that Bielsa would see both Phillips and Forshaw playing in the same team, I think. So again, it, it it's um it's a question of here's here's where injury play does yet again, um, because there's very few games where we actually did play Phillips and Forshaw together. So let's let's talk about that midfield three then. If you if we assume that Phillips is playing in the six, who do you fill into those other two roles? What sort of midfielders do you need to complement that um, really destructive deep lying uh, midfielder? So in the early part of the season when we had we had Phillips, Click and Saiz, that worked really well early on because Saiz really was a true number ten. And I think with Click he he's probably more suited to the number eight. So what so when Saiz went, which sort of forced us to play Click as the number ten, when Roberts didn't, I think um you're probably looking at sort of less goal production out of a three with Click at the ten. But when we played um Phillips for show and Click against uh, Villa that was a three that I've been wanting to see for a while. Just just because I thought it'd make us a bit a bit more solid in midfield. Forshaw's obviously he's not he's not a real goal threat or assist threat. He's more of a controlling type midfielder. As it stands, that would be a three that I would I'd be happy to go into next season with and one that I'd want to see a bit more of. 
In terms of Tyler Roberts then, how would you see him fitting into that? Because obviously Roberts is a bit more of a classic 10 um, in terms of you expect him to get the ball in the, in the space between the midfield and the, and the defence and, and be a little bit more creative. And I think he was, he was really quite important for us in certain games and actually allowed us a little bit of an out when we were, were relying heavily on Hernandez in that regard. So would you just take the hit there and, and, and play for sure and, and click and, and assume then that you've really got sort of two more free eights than, than, a, than, a, than a sort of classic eight and then a ten? Um, yeah, in, in regards to Roberts, I think if, if Bielsa is set on him being a number ten in this squad, I think a full pre-season of sort of learning and getting into that role full-time, he would be a better version of what we saw this season because he did have some really strong parts to his game playing in that role. I think I think back to West Brom at home, that was as complete a performance as we've seen from him in that position, sort of getting the ball, being able to drive at the midfield and then without the ball, he had, he had the work rate to be able to get back into midfield and sort of stick close to whoever he was marking. But yeah, if, if we think back earlier when we were talking about options off the bench... If Bielsa didn't see him as a, an automatic starter next season, to be able to bring him on in that role off the bench next season would be a, a massive boost. So in terms of the central midfield, what sort of ranking would you give it? So, I mean, I know it's tough because there's probably very many combinations that we played through the through the season, but what would you give the best average and then the maybe the worst average out of 10? Midfield, I think I'd give it uh, 7.5. I think, obviously, Phillips was really strong throughout the season and... Click's season should be remembered in a really good light. Even beyond the goals and assists that he brought, just the availability and the amount of minutes that he played in what is probably the most demanding position in the team, so that box-to-box, number eight role. For him to go through the season playing that many games and be one of basically one or two that didn't pick up an injury was really impressive. Yeah, more so, I think, even for the fact that we didn't even expect him to be playing much this season and, and then he went on to be the player who had the most minutes too. I'd agree, seven, seven and a half, I think. The, at times, this, the central midfield had... <laughs> really woeful games there's times I mean important to remember there's times when when a central midfielder would just get hauled off Phillips got hauled off before half time a, a few times um, Forshaw got hauled off a few times as well and had some notably bad games as well where he gave, I mean it was at the Forest game where he gave away um, the, the early goal and that sort of set things back and then Phillips got the red card etc and the, it, again it was a, it was a case of when we were good we were very very good and when we were bad we were horrid but um, yeah I'm, I'm happy to go with that We've already touched on this, but we, we should maybe just cover this a little bit more at Mighty White's pod. How much did we miss size on the face of it? I think I would say, yeah, probably quite a bit. We certainly, we certainly missed a creative uh, influence in the second half of the season, particularly at the end. But but we've already mentioned that Click was did come in and, and fulfil a different role. And I guess the season would have looked very different had we kept size. But I don't ne- think that necessarily means that it was hugely worse than it could have been. But I, you've already given your thoughts on that. Would you would you agree with that or? Yeah. At the end of the season, when we think back to sort of why things went wrong, I think we probably underplayed the fact that we lost a player of size's quality, essentially out of nothing. If you think, had Norwich lost, I don't know, Buendia in January, obviously how big a factor that would have been. I think I think losing size has sort of been underplayed a bit for us because at the time that he was sold, I remember looking at sort of the, the metrics on chance creation and if you're looking at expected assists from open play, 
he ranked number one per 90 in the championship at the time he left. So losing what is essentially one of the best creators in the division and not replacing him at all was was a massive blow in hindsight. Yeah, and I think we went through a phase as well, didn't we, where we tried Hernandez in the in the number 10 spot and, and that didn't quite work as well. And it, it felt that after Saez went... Bielsa spent a huge amount of time actually trying to work out how to sort out the problem of him leaving, um, and it, it it took a, it did take a, quite a while for us to get. And I think it almost came down to that point at which um, Tyler Roberts was 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 getting back to to well, it was getting to a point where he was actually playing really well in that position, and that was quite late on in the season. And then we obviously lost him in in the in the final run of the season as well. So there's just it it seems as though a lot of the season was sort of problem solving, um, and we didn't really get to where we where we were ever going to try and get to be. We had a good sense of what our best team was. We just never got the chance to to really fulfil it. Yeah, and another thing that we lost with Saez was a genuinely good dribbler. When I watched Leeds this season, I always thought we were really short on sort of individual 1v1 talent. I was looking at sort of dribbling numbers for Leeds and uh, we had 10 players that averaged more than one attempted dribble per 90 and Saez's dribble success rate was 53%, which would make him sort of one of the, the trickiest dribblers in the division. By that same token, if, if you look who ranked bottom for us, it was Harrison with 36% which sort of highlighted the fact that in those in that final third when we needed, you know, at times when we're struggling to break a team down, we can't always provide that solution by sort of a nice, well-constructed attacking piece of play. Sometimes you need a player who can get the ball and do something 1v1 and, you know, make something important happen. Yeah, I'm just looking at the... Um... The dribble stats from the first half of the season compared to the second half of the season and it's it's interesting in the second half of the season we attempted uh, just under 15 dribbles per 90 um, in the first half of the season we we attempted just under 12 so obviously we're doing three more dribbles per game on average in the second half of the season than the f- first but despite the fact that we're doing more dribbles we only com- we completed fewer than um, one extra dribble in the second half of the season so um, the dribbles completed in the first half is 6.7 and in the second half is 7.9 so it's just over one we were clearly struggling in the second half of the season uh, in terms of we had the scope to do more dribbles but we were weren't completing huge uh, a huge number more of those dribbles so I think that that tallies with what you're saying Moving on to the, I guess, the wide players, the attacking players, it's a story of Hernandez being very important to everything that Leeds do. As you say, Leeds rely on Pablo Hernandez too much for creativity. Um, yeah, without a doubt. I don't think it's even one way you have to dig into the numbers to, to sort of provide evidence for it. Anybody who's, who's watched Leeds this season knows sort of the burden that he's had to carry throughout. And then when you add factors on top of it, like Saez leaving, who was sort of sort of a partner in crime for him early on, that workload just got bigger as the season went on. And, you know, with, with 40-odd games in those, in those legs at 34, it felt like the task was getting more difficult for him like the higher the stakes as we got further into the season. I saw some mention that sort of he faded in the playoffs and you could probably you could probably evidence that. I think it just it just propped us up for so long in terms of creation that it just it just was too much in the end for him to keep going when we weren't getting the rewards from what he was doing. 
there's almost a correlation between Leeds playing well and Hernandez playing well, Leeds playing badly and Hernandez playing badly. And I think there's an awareness that so much was being expected of him that they, there couldn't really be uh, any hard feelings against him from the, from the Leeds fans. And I think particularly the last, I was at the last five or so games and just the, you could see it slowly dawning on him that, you know, he just couldn't do any more than he, than he'd already done. He, he did look uh, a shadow of him, his former self, he did look exhausted. And, and there was that frustration there I think as there were with a lot of the players um, we haven't really talked about the sort of psychological impact of 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 the end but um, maybe it's a good place to to talk about it now my, my take on it is that Bielsa gets the team playing so much above themselves that uh, he ended up in a scenario where there was a there was a side who had players pushing for promotion who hadn't really gone through the um, the expectation of, of and the and the psychological impact of, of playing for a promotion uh, and the team didn't particularly thrive on that and I, I think that's you know you can tie that to the to the burnout narrative with Bielsa he's when you get the when you get your players playing so much above their level that they're now competing for things that they never competed before there is that psychological lack that some of them have that they aren't able to deal with um, the pressure of being in a scenario that the, a lot of elite teams have where they're expected to perform week in week out so I don't know if you have any thoughts on that yeah I would, I would agree with that especially over the, the sort of the burnout accusation I think rather than that it was the fact that we we raised our level beyond what was expected for so long that eventually it would go back to normal I think we were sort of redlining our squad not in terms of in terms of running or intensity or anything like that but redlining the quality that we had in there and the options that we 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 got the maximum out of out of what we could for as long as we could and obviously that end came before the end that we wanted just a quick thing on Jack Clark. Someone did ask TD Woodhead again. I'd be interested in a statistical analysis of Jack Clark pre and post Middlesbrough. Was his effectiveness limited later in the season because he was playing in a different way? Was he simply trying the same things but being less effective at them? I took a quick look at the underlying stats. I would say the most important thing to remember here is that Jack Clark had a virus that clearly hit him hard. He was never quite the same coming back after that virus and, and hopefully I'll have a good summer and we'll get him back to the condition that he was in before that. But I did look at his underlines and it was, it was clear that it's the same thing that we've been saying over and over again the team were were shooting a lot more they weren't creative in in quite the same way that we would have wanted them to um, be assist wise so um, whereas in the first half of the season or before before the Middlesbrough game Clark was um, getting into dangerous areas and laying people up he uh, became much more of a shooty player in in the, in the second half and I think that's just again a combination of that panicking and also the fact that that Leeds were struggling to create chances so they ended up shooting from further out so that would be my my brief um, comment there but we should move on quickly to talk a little bit about um, Bielsa we've got a a question from at Talking Jack Shit. What could the big man have done better? And I assume he's talking about Bielsa here rather than Pierre Lasaga. What do you think we could have seen from Bielsa that we didn't see? This is definitely the most difficult question that I saw on the list. I, I still don't really know how I would answer this. I think rather than what he could have done better, there were there were a few things that I would I would like to sort of hear his reasoning why that he does. One of those would be the fact that most of the time we played wingers on their orthodox side, so Harrison on his left and Jack Clark on the right when he came on. And I think because we struggled sort of in terms of when we isolated play on one side, in terms of getting those 1v1s and getting something good from it, I think the fact that they played on their sort of natural sides, it meant when they beat the man, so the only real option was to cross it. If you, if you think across the season, the number of times where a winger would get the ball 
and be able to come inside and create something good. You're thinking about Clark's goal away at Aston Villa is probably the only real standout in terms of that. So I think if if we could play wingers on their opposite sides where they could cut in more, perhaps that could be sort of a, another wrinkle in our attack next season. In the same way that you think of players like Onel Hernandez, El Ghazi at Villa, they had, they had that option where they could really go at full-backs and they'd have the, the double threat of being able to go one way or another or the other. I'm with you here. It's a really tough question to answer, isn't it? Because I think, you know, he took a he took a squad who finished thirteenth the season before and got them to finish third and in many respects they were unlucky to not have gone gone up automatically, et cetera, et cetera. And it just feels as though this it's so easy to lose the the perspective that that this was so much more than um, really we ever thought was possible, um, just in the manner of the way that that things went bad. That um, it's 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 easy to focus on the negatives, but when you actually think about it in that sense, you kind of think, well, what what really could have been done better? I think for me, the biggest frustration of the season was the Wigan game at home, when when they went down to ten men after whatever it was, fifteen minutes or so, um, and it just felt as though we just carried on doing the same thing over and over and over again, and it felt at times that actually if we'd have just been we took we put we, we did what we do we we moved the ball into wide areas and crossed it in it just felt as though if we'd maybe been a little bit more direct and some of our better chances in that game came from being more direct and um hey you know i know that we trust in the process we trust in the system but the system does have the the, the capacity to to be able to accept that that slightly more direct style of play especially in a game like that which you really need to be winning and and i guess i that was that was those were the frustrations when it feels as though it was almost like a bloody mindedness um with respect to sticking to the to the system so that would maybe be one of the things i would have asked another thing that's i think really big for bielsa and obviously that's something that's come up quite a lot is the fact that he has that ability guardiola-esque to to improve individual players so james rushton um at jamo rushton asks who is the single player to have benefited most from marcelo bielsa and who has improved that much from last season i think for me i would i would say roof um just for the fact that sort of in previous seasons when he played for us he was he was played out on the wing left right sometimes as a number 10 he never really felt that he, he suited either of those positions but at the same time i never I was never really sold on this guy should play number nine and start everybody every game for us before Bielsa came. But I think since he has he has got that number nine role and worked under Bielsa through preseason, I think he showed himself as to be a really good number nine, sort of in terms of well roundedness, his movement, dragging fenders around, fighting as that lone striker, and as well as without without the ball, his pressing. He's got that natural willingness to get after centre backs. And I, th- I think it's when I look back at the season, it's it's a real shame that he didn't sort of have the the availability that someone like Pookie did. Because I think if if he'd have started thirty eight, thirty nine, forty games, he would have put up twenty goals this season. Again, it's 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 interesting, isn't it? Because for me, so much of this question can be answered by. I mean, obviously, um, Bielsa has benefited the, the whole squad. They've played at a level better than they they've ever played. But so much of it, I think, rather than coming down with like in, working with individuals, it comes down to developing that system that works for them and these players being able to fit into that system. So I would say as well, notable mention for Liam Cooper. Obviously, obviously, I agree with everything that you said about Roof, um, and it feels as though because Bielsa's system is so much about 
exploitation of space, creating space, working out how to move and uh, rotate and interchange in order to uh, create the best attacking spaces. Roof really benefited from that because I think Roof has a is a really intelligent mover in the space. But yeah, honourable mention for Liam Cooper, who um, I think has really improved from being able to be, play in a system which emphasises the things that he's really good at. So the the ability to play the ball around with his feet. Uh, and also, like you said, to, to function in a high line when the ball's coming in uh, at his, his head in the aerials. Um, uh, but other than that, I think, you know, it, there's just been so many players in the course of the season who've, I mean, again, Jack Harrison, I think a lot of the fans were very negative about him. But I think by the end of the season, it felt as though Jack Harrison was doing things better than early season Jack Harrison was doing. So it's 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 quite hard to, I think, isolate individuals who, who benefited from Bielsa. But have you got anyone else you would want to mention honourably? Or uh, yeah, I, th- I think you could answer this question in so many ways. Like you said, um, in many ways, it'd be easy to say which player didn't benefit from him because <laughs> yeah. actually everybody did. But uh, I don't want to single anyone out for <laughs> not taking the step. So I'll leave it at that. Right. Let's quickly just move on to the summer. Um, we talked about our p- replacements all the way through, all the way through this. So I think it's pretty clear from what we've said that we would like another centre back to bolster the centre back areas, uh, another full back to, to bolster that area. Beyond that, what sort of player would you like to see coming through this summer? Number one for me would be a winger who could hypothetically bring sort of 10, 10 to 12 goals and sort of add a real goal threat from the wing. I mentioned players before like Hernandez at Norwich and El Ghazi at Villa. Play, players that you can rely on to sort of create danger without needing the help of the system all the time to create space for them. I, th- I think this season, sort of our system as Salah player created created space for for wide players, particularly so many times. But we just we were never able to cash in on them as much as sort of we would have if we had a more well-rounded option. And uh, that that's not one hundred percent criticism of Harrison because he's a young player, and I think throughout the season he was he was always trying to work himself out and still work his game out himself. But w- when it came to crunch time, I just think other teams had more attacking quality in those areas than we did. Hmm. It's a tricky season next season, I think, because you've got to really think about Pablo Hernandez's longevity and and if you build a, t- a team which in an attacking sense is built around him and you think that he's not going to be playing the majority of games, or at least, yeah, he's not going to be playing the majority of games next season or you're going to have to start thinking about phasing him out. The question then becomes, well, do you, do you try and match that system that they've been playing? Do you try and play with that sort of really creative player um, in in that in that sense, or do you try and develop a different um, a, a different way of attacking? Um, so I think it'll be interesting to see whether or not because you've got to feel as though they'll bring someone in to to sort of deputise for for Pablo Hernandez, and it'll be interesting to see how that's done. Will it be an entirely different player, and then you'll sort of be playing two mini systems when when he's on the pitch and when he's not so yeah it'll be really interesting to see who they bring in in those wide areas and i and i suppose yeah maybe maybe the other option is perhaps a more creative 10 if if the decision is well let's try and get a creative player in the in in place of hernandez who's going to play in that 10 spot and then have maybe a um a winger of the mould of the players that you've just mentioned um, in that spot as well. So I'm, I'm quite interested to see how how the club develops um, those those two spots in particular and what, what sort of decision it makes about what the team is going to look like as an attacking unit. Yeah, I agree with the number 10 bit as well because I think especially this season in games where we really needed a goal 
particularly late on, you would often see Bielsa sort of just let Hernandez roam anywhere, take him off that right side spot. You'd, you'd see him dropping back to get the ball, the centre back carrying it, making passes all over the all over the pitch. He did, he did it at Villa, if I remember rightly. Just just dropped Hernandez into a completely free role because we needed him to have as many touches as possible, and it would be it'd be nice for him to have a bit more help in that sense yeah it could even be the case that they keep Hernandez playing as a 10 and then bring in a winger so to do some of that stuff from from wide areas as well um so there's there's lots up to to play for but uh final question youth players who would you like to see coming through maybe a little bit more uh, regularly next season I've been to quite a few under 23 games a season and every time I watch them I just think I wish I wish Practically everybody on this pitch was three, four years older because I think it is a, a really talented team and a lot of those players are going to have good careers in the future. But thinking about what we need in our team that could be immediately available, I'd, I'd be looking at players like John Stevens, the winger. He was on the bench a few times this season, but he's a real direct player that does play on his orthodox side, but he, he has a lot more pace and Clark, I would say, sort of that just kick and run style where he can go around the outside and get into a dangerous position. A couple of others, I'd, I'd say Robbie Gotts. He reminds me of Shackleton quite a bit. Unbelievable energy, box to box player who can also play at full back. Not a player who does anything that that stands out in terms of one isolated attribute, but just a player who does all the things at a good level. Thinking of centre backs, I do like Struick, uh, the Dutch lad in terms of a, a ball-playing centre-back who is really physically posing for his age. When he sort of gets more experience and grows into his frame, he's, he'll be an absolute monster back there. Again, there are there are plenty of options in that under-23 team, and I'd be very surprised if we didn't see two or three more join the team next season. Did you mention Ryan Edmonton? I think he's another that you're desperate to see what he's going to be like in two or three years' time, because obviously he's, he's, he's scored quite a lot of goals this season, but I wouldn't see him as somebody who's going to sort of push for a starting spot in that first team just yet. He is still very young, even though he looks sort of 25 already. But yeah, in in time, I do think he's going to be a good player for Leeds, but I wouldn't pick him out as somebody who would make the difference in any real way for us next season. So I guess one final question would be, how are you feeling about next season now? It's been confirmed that Marcelo Bielsa is going to be back at the helm. Do you think the Leeds go into this season favourites to go up or as one of the top favourites? to go up yeah I think they've got to be one thing I thought this season especially when we were pushing against Norwich and Sheffield United was Wilder had the benefit of like he already had a few years before but he had a championship season under his belt with the same set of players and I, I always wondered what sort of advantage that was for them how much of a difference that made sort of especially getting to crunch time this season when they've been together for so long they've been through a a full season together already and worked out all the kinks that we just didn't have the time to we were working on the fly for a lot of the season I just I think that extra year of having the squad all together working in Bielsa's way given how unique it is you would have to say that we'll be one of the favourites next season but it will depend on what players we get in as well 
Yeah, it's interesting because it's it's like the first it's the first time in however many years that Leeds have had a manager they've kept over the summer. So it'll be nice to watch almost like a developmental aspect to the to the game that we've just not really enjoyed in the last few years. This everything else has felt so short termist. So it's quite nice to have the chance to feel as though you're building on a previous season. Yeah, there are players in our squad that sort of didn't have the benefit of that pre-season under Bielsa. I think of players like Bamford. Will he take a step like Roof did last season uh, with that benefit of having this, the entire summer under Bielsa? Well, I've kept you for, for way, way too long as it is. So thank you very much, Jamie, for, for coming on and chatting to me. What's the best way for people to follow you on social media? Twitter is uh, Jamie M. Kemp. I haven't tweeted much recently, but that was just stress at the end of the season <laughs> so I'll get back to it at some point good stuff and you can find me at John underscore McKenzie hopefully you'll have enjoyed this podcast and maybe we'll do a few more next season depending on, on how it works for us so, but thanks again Jamie for coming on cheers John thank you interviews, analysis, music, and, and me, Matt Kuhn, on total engagement. Go to any podcast platform to listen today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 